Uh, good evening, everybody. Turn in your Bibles to John 15, verse 7. Sorry, making a bunch of noise. John 15, verse 7. For a quick uh, pit stop before we get to our main passage. I uh, wanted to uh, state that uh, the recording for yesterday, which was Wednesday, November 30th, um, something, a glitch happened and it didn't get recorded. We apologize for that. I put it on the website that uh, the notes are there at least. Uh, so you can read through the notes if you want, but the recording didn't work. We apologize for that. I wanted to also remind uh, anyone who's interested in the Zoom meeting, we still are doing those every Friday at 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, our time. So it's 4 p.m. my time on the West Coast. So uh, you can use a, a little Google search to see what time that will be at your house <laughs> if you want to join us. Uh, and I also got a, a prayer request today for a uh, uh, a family who they were kayaking in Mexico, and uh, I think on Thanksgiving Day, and they disappeared. The wife, whose name is Yan Soo Kim, was found, and her husband, Corey, has not yet been found. Uh, she had been found uh, deceased, uh, I believe, now that I think about that. I just I hope I'm not just assuming that. Uh, but uh, they have two children, 18 and 14, and they're friends of Susan Reich in... Um, who's a listener of ours in uh, Prescott. No. Yes, she's in Prescott, Arizona. <laughs> I'm messing up all my announcements here. I apologize for that. So if you would, please keep that family in mind. Uh, Corey Allen, the family of Corey Allen and his wife, Yan Su. Uh, let's uh, open up in prayer ourselves. Let's thank God for our time together to hear his word and to be instructed in this very important subject of prayer uh, now that we are going to get into the real meat of prayer, as what we've done so far is is mostly setting us up for this. And uh, so with that, with humility and reverence, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for who you are, for your holiness. And through your holiness, Father, there was only one thing that you could do to bring us to yourself, and that was to give us your Son, to make us holy. You have made us holy through the cross of Christ, as is written by your servant Paul in Colossians, that peace was made between us and you, but through the blood of his cross. The one who is, in the image of the invisible God, who is God, who is you, or your Son, became a man, and through his blood, blood of the cross, which is his sacrifice in our behalf, his judgment in our behalf, he has made us your children. Would we speak to you, Father, as he did when he was here, with the same conviction, with the same love, with the same commitment, which is as son to father, as he was to you, to call you father, and to know all that that means. And that's where we begin uh, in this study. So, <clears throat> our Father, thank you for all that you are and what you do to us and through us by means of your grace and love. We ask that through your Spirit that each of us would learn and learn how to use prayer to the benefit of ourselves and our relationship with you. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in the last few classes, I think two, is it two or three, that we've seen the context of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Uh, we're going to be specifically on Matthew, but uh, the Lord's Prayer is mentioned in two places, in Matthew and in Luke, and we'll jump back and forth between the two. Matthew's is more extensive, and so that will be our template. The uh, immediate context in Matthew and in Luke is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's significant. There's actually a few things that are significant here in terms of context, so if you can bear with me, and it's important for us to understand that before we get into the, 
the words themselves that we have a full grasp of the context of the prayer that's given. In Matthew, Jesus' ministry begins, the, the, his gospel begins with the message of Jesus that is, uh, sorry, let's back up. Jesus' ministry begins in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, his ministry in Galilee begins with the message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus taught. Uh, <clears throat> and then, immediately after that, he calls some disciples to follow him, and they immediately leave their old life behind, and they follow him. They immediately do so. Uh, now, there's a lot that transpires in, those, in that time. It, uh, Matthew presents all of this to us, which would have been you know, perhaps weeks or months of time. He presents to them to us right in the beginning in just a few sentences. And the reason why he does that is because he is emphasizing something. He is emphasizing a kingdom. And, then, and Matthew's gospel is written to Jews primarily. So he's emphasizing a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And he's emphasizing it in contrast to uh, false kingdoms, uh, which are the world's kingdoms. And that's why he says repent. You know, repent means to turn around, stop following the old kingdom or existing in the old kingdom and follow the new but then he asked the disciples to follow him. So Matthew's emphasis is on a kingdom that has come and obedience to that kingdom, or really to the king. The king of that kingdom asks Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him. They immediately left their nets and their boats and they followed him. And, you know, how much thinking went into that and say, Peter's mind? You know, did he. Was Peter uh, just immediately, oh yeah, sure, you know, obviously not. Peter would have thought about this, mulled it over. Um, should he go? Shouldn't he go? Uh, but none of that is given to us. And the reason why is because something here is being emphasized. It's not the thinking process of Peter or John that God wants us to know. What he wants us to see is obedience. And that's what's emphasized. And then so immediately after that, Obedience comes the Sermon on the Mount, which is full of obedience. And obedience of a kind that has never been heard on earth. Uh, complete, full devotion. Uh, to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Uh, so uh, the emphasis on obedience immediately rolls into the Sermon on the Mount, which is a necessary component of that sermon. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, He who hears these words of mine and acts upon them is the house built upon the rock. And that rock, that sorry, that house will stand. Uh, and so, hears and does what is told is the disciple. And so, the whole thing is about obedience. And in fact, we find in the prayer that it is commanded of us uh, right at the beginning. And we'll look at that. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is about the life and conduct of the most blessed people that God has ever made, that God has ever created, and that is the disciple of Christ in the church age. I'm not saying that for all of eternity we're the most blessed, but up to this point in human history, we most certainly are. Uh, <clears throat> the conduct, this is what the sermon is about, the conduct of the blessed disciple of Christ who is not under the law, but has the law written upon his heart because he loves the one who wrote the law. And so this is not just us abiding by commandments for the sake of abiding by them, but actually loving the one who gave the commandments. And therefore, actually, as the new covenant uh, is described as in uh, Jeremiah 31, and which is repeated in Hebrews chapter 8, which is that the law would be written upon our hearts. The law written upon our hearts doesn't mean that we've memorized it. It means much more than that. It means it has become an integral part of us, uh, what we love to do. Now, a law that is written on our hearts is the law that we obey. Uh, and therefore, it is something that we love to do. So that phrase, the law written or etched upon our hearts, actually refers to a love of God's law because we love the one who gave that law. Now, the thing with 
leaders in other kingdoms, right? Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of God is here, follow that. In other kingdoms, in human kingdoms, the laws that are made are not always loved by the lawgivers. Uh, and unfortunately, for a lot of laws, are loved by lawgivers because they're benefiting somehow uh, monetarily or with power. But uh, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, his laws come from him, meaning his nature, his character. Uh, everything you find here that is written of a commandment in the, in the scripture, Old Testament and New, is the heart of God. It is the love of God. It is what God desires. It is, quote unquote, his will. Uh, therefore, when Jesus came into the world in Hebrews chapter 10, he said, a body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will, O God. And so that's what's here. The disciple is obedient. The disciple desires the will of God because he loves the will of God. And so, and we'll see very easily here that this is why prayer is so important in the pursuit of the love of this will. That is far more important than the pursuit of the will itself. Now, the two have to go hand in hand. Don't get me wrong. We have to pursue and know the will. We have to, whether we feel like doing God's will or not, we must do it. Uh, but what we're really after, which is the best, the highest of all motivations, is to love the one who gave the law and therefore love the law. And when I say law, I don't mean Mosaic law. I mean all the laws uh, that are commandments upon us that are uh, many of which are in the Old Testament and New. <clears throat> so we start in John 15, 7. Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. In the context, this is the, uh, the par- parable, yeah, it's a parable, of the vine and the branches. And Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. And the, the good branches bear fruit. Uh, the good branches bear much fruit. And therefore, there are branches that are obedient. So he says, abide in me and my words abide in you. That ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Abiding here is obeying. That's what the, the branches that bear fruit, they abide in him. They want to abide in him. They obey him. They love him. They love his way. They want to follow that way. Uh, the competition, though, is all around us, from our sin nature, the world around us, and certainly the temptations of the kingdom of darkness are uh, upon us to try and, and taint or uh, cloud, if you will, uh, make us misunderstand the word of God, uh, the will of God, uh, to make us deceived uh, and to, to not really truly understand and see what's at stake and see what this will of God is really and truly all about. Because the kingdom of darkness knows that when we see it, we're going to love it. Uh, anyone who sees it would have to love it. Anybody who sees God's face would have to love him. And, and that's what they're after, is to try and deceive us. So again, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, and the reason why that is important is that because in his name means that we are before our Father representing our uh, Savior, we're in his name. We present ourselves to the Father in his name. Therefore, we are under the obedience or the will of the Son who obeys the Father. And and that's why it's going to be done for us, whatever we ask, because it's going to be done. What, What we're asking for is according to the will of the Father. And we can have great confidence in that. For him to fulfill it, it may take time. And all of that we learn along the way. The disciple learns to be patient. The disciple learns all of these things. Uh, and it's a bumpy road for sure and the process of learning. But the point is, the more, most important point, is that we are learning and growing and striving to get there. Uh, I have a lot of years behind me, just as you have many of you behind you in which uh, not many good things were done, but that doesn't stop us from pursuing now. And uh, the, the years in the past don't even have to slow us down from pursuing now because once we see, then we're going to reach ahead for that which we've been called. So let's go to Matthew 6, 9. 
we'll read the prayer through. It won't take long because it's very short. Uh, and, it, and when we're done with this, you'll see that how how enormous this prayer is in terms of a few short words. And of course, the Lord himself would easily be able to do this. To give us exactly pertinent to the point, exactly what we need to have in our minds when we're praying, but not just parroting the words. Understanding the concepts behind the words. The truths that are behind the words. Uh, Right at the beginning, our Father is in heaven has enormous implications. The thoughts that can come from just that short little line uh, are are, uh, enormous. There's just so much that comes from that. And and that goes into that. The the fact that I can call him Father and so on. And and we'll pursue all of that. First, we want (coughs) to look at at the front of it. Uh, in Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says, pray then in this way. Now, what I'm reading is the New American Standard updated version. Uh, if you have a different version, it might be slightly different. And so we'll look at the Greek there because in this case, most of the Greek here, except for one very strange word that's in this prayer that's not written anywhere else. <laughs> and that's, it's hard for us to understand, uh, but it, it doesn't have a great impact Uh, on that particular petition. But everything else is very straightforward uh, from Greek to English. Uh, But what we would miss at the front is, well, we'll read it through. Let's read it through first. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means sanctified. I'm surprised the New American Standard updated kept hallowed because nobody in English uses that word anymore. But... Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or sanctified, be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, in Greek, it's in heaven as it is on earth, uh, but they switch it around. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation there at the the end, uh, just to give you some help if you're of the question, why would God lead me into temptation? Uh, <clears throat> of course, he wouldn't. But when So when we say don't lead us into temptation, that word for temptation is always used of the temptation that comes from Satan. And so uh, that helps to clarify. It still doesn't clarify the difficulty of what is stated. Uh, not, not 100%, I don't think, but it, it helps in that. Don't lead us, Father, to... We want to be led... But don't lead us into the realms where I'll be tempted by the devil. And then deliver us from evil, which could be the evil one, meaning the devil. So uh, from the start, we need to know that the Lord has given us a command. The literal translation here is, therefore, thus, you pray. Uh, If we just take the Greek words uh, in actually in order... Therefore, thus, well, actually, they're not in order because it would be, therefore, thus, pray you. Uh, but uh, you here is emphasized. There's, uh, it doesn't need to be there. There's a pronoun used by the Lord. And when he gives the command pray, it's in the second person plural. Uh, that means you pray. He doesn't have to use the pronoun. As Greek doesn't need to use pronouns. English does. Um, so, therefore, when Greek does use pronouns, uh, there's a slight, you can go a little overboard with the emphasis, but it's a slight emphasis. He's emphasizing you guys pray. And, and that means that it's prayer for us is of extreme importance. Added to that, uh, that shows us how important it is, is the fact that it's an imperative. It's a present imperative. This is called a customary present. Uh, it means that this is something that should be a customary aspect of our lives. We are to pray. It is commanded of us. Um, and so it is a command among many. When I say among many, uh, I meant there that it is a command in the many that are in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the... Uh, I didn't. I had a mind to go through the text and count them all up, and then I got lazy. But uh, there's many, many commands, as you would expect in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of them. Pray, uh, you pray. Uh, 
Now, to smooth this out in English, we use things like pray in this way, uh, pray in this manner. Uh, I think it's pray like this. I think that was the new, uh, in, new uh, what is it called? Uh, NLT. I really like that one. New literal translation or something like that. No, it's not literal. Whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, there's many English translations out there, as you know. Uh, and, you know, in English, therefore, thus, pray you doesn't sound good. So we have to, in English, smooth it out. When we smooth it out, we can uh, think that it says things that it doesn't. And we have to be careful about that. When he says, if we translate it as, uh, I think, the King James, it says, pray like this, or uses the word like, we might think that Jesus actually said the word like, but he didn't. You know, that's we're using English to help us out there. But uh, some have emphasized that like means that you're not to use these words at all, that you're to use words that are like them. And I, you know, actually, he says this in Greek. So if you're going to actually use his words, you'd have to memorize the Greek. Uh, so that, that'll help us out to know that we don't have to parrot the words exactly. But you can go too far with the word like is what I'm emphasizing. Just take it as he says it. Therefore, thus you pray. Uh, Wallace in his uh, exegetical textbook, uh, this is the textbook that I have to use for my Greek class, actually speaks of this exact verse and he calls it a customary present imperative. Uh, And he, he says this, that... Uh, The force of a customary present imperative is simply to continue. It's a command for action to be continued. Action that may or may not have been going on. It is often a character building command to the effect of make this your habit or train yourself in this. And this is how he translates it. He's the pretty much the preeminent Koine Greek biblical scholar Uh, that there is right now. And he says, you should therefore pray as follows. And Wallace says here, quote, the focus is on urgency, sorry, the focus is not on urgency nor on a momentary act. The initial command at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer means make it your habit to pray in the following manner. And, you know, all that stuff about customary present and all that, that's what it means. That's all you need to know about it. That what this is, is Jesus is saying in command, make this your habit. Make this your habit to pray. But then he gives us the words. So it's obvious that he's not saying pray and, you know, just say whatever you want. Whatever comes to mind, whatever, whatever feels good. Uh, no, he's not saying that. What he is saying is that this manner of prayer, make this your habit. Now, again, we don't have to say exactly his words here, but his words have meaning. All words do. Uh, Words are useless if they don't have meaning. We see this in our current society where people have uh, different pronouns for themselves now. And and so uh, if I can say I'm I'm two two, uh, genders in one, then the word gender has has lost its meaning completely. Uh, And so... It doesn't mean anything. The words are just words that we say. Not so, though. Uh, Words have meaning, and that's why God uh, put his thoughts in word. And we've got to know the meaning of those words. They're very important. And notice how the Lord here actually picks very few words to communicate his prayer. It's very short. And so each word should be looked upon and, and how they're related to one another. And something else as well. A few other things. Uh, The initial command uh, here fits with the Lord's follow-up commands that he says later on in in this very sermon. After he warns us, after he teaches us to pray, he warns us not to be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, he says in 6.25. Then he says, starting in chapter 7, don't judge others. Now, I take don't judge others as don't be anxious about them. So don't be anxious for your own life and then whatever else other people are doing. Don't be anxious about them others, them either. Don't judge them. And then right after that, he gives another command. It's actually three in one, but they all speak of the same thing. 
He says, ask, seek, and knock. These are also commands. So look at Matthew 7, 7. We have the command to pray. All right, you pray. And then we have, in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will knock. Sorry, (laughs) seek and you will knock. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, we're not going to stop there because he's going to finish his thought. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a, he, if he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in he- who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? What, as we ask, uh, Wallace, same textbook, classifies these as iterative present imperatives. And what this means is a repeated action, iterative. It's like you ask, then you ask again, then you ask again. Later on, you seek, you seek some more, you seek some more. And look, as we, when we say that to ourselves, we understand that while we're asking and asking again and asking again, we're learning. As we're seeking, we're seeking again and again. If we're not finding anything or finding more depth to something that we're seeking, then our seeking's not that good. And so seeking and knocking in, uh, uh, implies that we're on a journey of discovery. And if we're on a journey of discovery, or like Indiana Jones here, going through this door and that cranny and around that corner, and we're seeking and we're seeking and we're seeking, that the promise is from God here that is that if you keep this up, in other words, iterative, it's a, the present tense of this command says that it must be a repeated action. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And then what is the promise? Your Father who is in heaven. Now, does that sound familiar, right? Your Father who is in heaven, our Father who is in heaven. It's a reminder of prayer. Your Father who is in heaven will give what is good to those who ask him. So as this is the confidence he gives us. He said, look, don't be anxious for your own life. Don't judge others. Don't be anxious for their lives. But keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking, and the good things will come. And good material things, they're not important. The good things are the ability not to worry and be anxious, the ability not to judge, the ability to have harmony and fellowship and love for others, even your enemies, which is in the sermon, and to have peace of mind and joy in your heart and strength and courage to be able to actually think through and live through what this sermon is, which is the blessed life of the disciple of Christ. Blessed are, and right starts off with what? Blessed are the poor? <laughs> and we're saying, oh, well, that's, that doesn't sound blessed, uh, but it truly is. It, doesn't, it means that... Um, that we are humble uh, and we depend upon God in everything and he is our all in all. The Lord Jesus Christ is our all in all. We don't consider ourselves rich in this world whether we have stuff or we don't. And, and so this, that's what this is, the blessed life. And, and having prayer, actually we would say with Matthew 7, 7 through 11, prayer is mentioned twice in this sermon the Lord's Prayer, and the asking, keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Now, uh, continuing to set us up for a deeper understanding before we get into the meat of it, is that the Lord's Prayer is found in the Gospels. You say, well, okay, I knew that. Well, it's in Matthew and Luke. and uh, And so when we're we're looking at literature in the scripture. There are different kinds. And you know who does a marvelous job with this is the Bible Project. The Bible Project has a series of videos that describe, um, and they're based here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, their videos are in our, uh, every once in a while, in our uh, daily Bible reading. 
um, they do a great job with that. But they, they have a series of videos on biblical literature, the different kinds of biblical literature and how they should be approached. Uh, to know that a different kind of literature, why is that important? It's because the writer is after something different. If you're writing a poem, uh, you're writing in a different way with a different desire than you are than when you're writing a history. The Gospels are a history of Jesus Christ. But as we've seen, it's not like the history of Jesus Christ. That's not their point. Uh, <clears throat> the, the first three Gospels look a lot alike. That's why they're called synoptic, meaning sin is same and optic means to look. And so it means they look the same. But they're not identical. Uh, and John is very different. And so why are they like that? Well, it's because the writer is different. Uh, the writer is, there's two things we want to look at when we're looking at the Gospels. It's first that it is a part of the story of Jesus. It's not the whole story of Jesus. I, I remember someone teaching years ago that in the Gospel, if you take all the gospel, four Gospels together and harmonize them, you get 65 days in Jesus' life. Uh, and that sounds about right. I've never double-checked it. I always quote it, though. <laughs> Why not? But... Uh, it's a part of the story of Jesus. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is a day in Jesus' life. And, you know, it's depicted as that. So we want to make sure that we're looking at it as what did the Lord want to say? You know, what does the Lord want here? It's about what he wants. This It's different than an epistle. When you find, like, Paul teaching us about prayer in, say, Ephesians, where Ephesians 6, he says, pray without ceasing, right? That's an instruction, but it's not Paul saying, pray this. You know, Paul didn't do that. He says, just pray, and he doesn't tell us what to say. Here we find Jesus telling us what to say, and that's unique from instructions in the epistles. So we've got a day in the life of our Savior who is looking upon a crowd in Galilee, probably a spring morning. We're pretty sure it's spring. And, and he's saying to them, I'm going to teach you now what it means to be my disciple. And as my disciple, this is how you pray. And so he's got, that's how we want to look at it. We want to look at it as, what does Jesus want to say here? And secondly, what does the writer want his audience to know? Why is Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer not identical with Luke's? Luke's is shorter. They're, they have this, and they actually have some words that are slightly different. Uh, so why is that? And that's, well, it's, it's really two things. Is what did Luke want to convey, and who is he conveying it to? What did Matthew want to convey, and who was he conveying it to? And we might say to ourselves, well, wait a minute, where does Matthew and Luke get off? This is the word of God. They shouldn't be able to convey what they want. But you have to remember, they are inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God breathes. And so what Matthew is saying or writing is impacted by that. And so when we're looking at Gospels, we want to look at them with both of those eyes open. What did Jesus want to say, and what does the writer want to say about what Jesus is saying? And uh, when we do that, we can uh, prevent ourselves from you know, coming up with anything false. The gospel is a narrative about the story of Jesus, whereas other things like, uh, say, prophecy about Jesus, it's different. Right? It's different than this. Um, and so you wouldn't find instruction in prayer on pro in prophecy. And even where you find instruction in prayer in the epistles of the New Testament, uh, it's not the same as this. So therefore, we would expect to find... This, a lot of people have a problem with the Lord's Prayer because, you know, there, there's, well, there's a lot of things that if we... If we uh, if we come at it with a certain preconceived notions, it won't make any sense to us. Uh, and so we have to keep at it, I guess is what I'm saying. So we would expect to find it different here, presented than prayer, or say, taught by Paul or Peter in the epistles. The gospel literature tells us the story of Jesus, while at the same time it addresses the gospel writer's contemporaries, their audience. 
Who's Matthew writing to? Uh, when we read the Gospels, we want to keep that in mind. It's a nuance for sure, but it's an important one. The reason someone is writing something and to whom they're writing to is going to affect what they write. You know, if you're writing a letter to your girlfriend or your wife or your boss, right? It's a different letter. Uh, you would write in a different style depending on who your audience is. What you were talking about, the topic of your letter, would cause you to write in a certain way. What if it's a technical letter or a, a friendship letter or something like that? It's going to be different. And so we want to keep that in mind. Who is Matthew writing to? And he, he's writing to Jews uh, that are in the early church. Uh, and also, uh, what does he want to convey? Uh, so, uh, we want to make, so we're going to ask ourselves first is what does Jesus, what does this passage tell us about the life of Jesus? That's what it is. So, it's, the gospel is a story about Jesus. Why is this part of the story included and other parts of the story not included? You know, for instance, why don't we know anything about his childhood? Because it's not important. It's not included. Not anywhere. Um, so, but why is this included? And what's going to help us out here is Luke. So go to Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Luke 11, verse 1. What does this prayer tell us about our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus prayed in a way that was unique. And unique to, or I should say rather unique from, common Jewish prayer. And he wanted the disciples to learn how to do this themselves. Now, how do we know that? Because of this in Luke 11. Look at Luke 11, 1. And it came about while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, uh, in Matthew's account, he says pray, that's the verb, prasukamai, to pray. Here, he says when you pray, prasuke, say. And he uses the word, the verb to speak. Uh, that's lego. He uses the word to speak. And he says legete. And it's again a commandment. When he says say here, it's a commandment. When he says pray, when in Matthew's account, it's a commandment. And it would be a customary present tense here, legate, meaning pray or, or say. And, and, and this is where we say, well, well, in Luke's account, he says say, and then he goes right into the words. And if any, in any normal conversation, if somebody said say and then gave you something to say, you would, how would you take it? I mean, let's not read into the Word of God what we want it to say. Uh, we would take it as he wants us to say these words. Uh, what's going to deliver us from, uh, you know, just parroting or giving lip service in prayer. See, I could memorize Luke's account of the prayer, but if you're going to memorize Luke's account, technically you should memorize it in Greek, because those are what the words are, and then... When you prayed it in Greek, it would be like you speaking in tongues because you wouldn't know what the heck you were saying. So, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, I'd rather say five words in my own mind that I understand than a thousand words in a tongue that I don't understand. So, it's important that we understand that behind these words, that there are thoughts and truths that are timeless. They, these thoughts and truths don't change. For instance, I have a Father in heaven. The implications of that are enormous. Perhaps we're so used to it. You know, we're used to, if we pray uh, consistently, we're used to just shooting up that word, Father. You know, we just say it at the beginning. That's our, that's our address. That's how we start it, Father. And, but, you know, that I, I think here in the Lord's Prayer, He is telling us to pause there. You know, maybe not every time you pray it, but... Often enough, pause there and say, what does it mean to call God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the transcendent one, the one who is eternal life, has no beginning and no end, who is so much bigger than me that it's incomprehensible? 
that that one is my true father forever. He calls me son or daughter. Now, the implications of that are enormous. And you would discover deeper and better implications of that as your prayer life, which is a lifelong conversation with God, as your prayer life continues through the rest of your Christian life. What does it mean to be a son of God who possesses the very name of God, whom the whole family possesses his name, as, Jesus, as uh, Paul writes in uh, Ephesians 3. Now, how do we know that Jesus here is praying something different? Well, the disciples are Jews. All right? So if they're pagans and Jesus is, you know, he's, say he's praying the Shema, which every Jew knows. They say it twice a day, in morning and in evening. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Right? Every day, morning and evening. Shema, uh, O uh, Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akav. Right? That's it in Hebrew. If you, if you had any time under kernel theme, you'd know that verbatim. Uh, he's not praying that because they wouldn't ask him to teach them that. They know that. The common prayers before they had a meal, before they went to bed, when they got up in the morning, when they gave thanks for anything. These were common Jewish prayers. What about the Psalms? The, the Psalms that were prayed, like the Hallel. The Hallel is a common Psalm 113 through 118 that they said every Passover. I know it was every Passover, and I think also at the Feast of Tabernacles. That if he were praying one of those Psalms, they wouldn't have asked him, teach us how to pray. Uh, they wouldn't have asked that. They would have said, oh yeah, he's praying Psalm 115, which is a praise psalm. It's a praise for the Lord. Uh, but he's praying something unique, or they wouldn't have asked him. They're not obviously asking him to teach them what John prayed. They say, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples to pray. So John, although we don't get any context there, that would be neat to have, what did John teach his disciples to pray? But that's obviously not, it's not needful for us to know. What is needful is that when they ask the Lord, teach us how to pray, it's right after they heard him pray. And, and they're like, what is he doing? It must be different. And I tell you, one of the things that he would be doing different is saying, Father. They didn't do that. Jews didn't do that. They called God Adonai. They wouldn't even call him Yavah or Yahweh. Uh, they thought that was a disrespect. By this time in, in the history of the Jews, they wouldn't use that, that uh, name that God gave to Moses. Uh, they would say Adonai, which kind of means master or sir. So, um, when you pray, say. Uh, from uh, we, What he uses here is... All right, so... But that's good to wrap that up. Wrapping this first part up is that the command is given to pray and that Jesus' prayer is unique from the common Jewish prayers of that were throughout their history and of their day. Uh, now, next, what we want to look at, and we'll go back to Matthew 6, is the limits of this text. What are the limits of this prayer? There are six petitions. Some count them as seven. It's, it goes works better as six. Um, the six petitions are divided directly into two parts. And it's a good reminder that any time we're going to classify anything in the Word of God, which is when we call we systematize, right? We systematize things. When we classify things, we want to make sure that we're simple. We want to get overly cute with classification. Uh, you kind of lose the forest in the trees when you do that. It's very possible. And also, uh, you can hyper-nuance things that uh, shouldn't really be nuanced. Yeah, this, this falls under the category of keep it simple. Uh, for, there's two parts, three petitions each, six petitions in total. The first part is praising God. Our Father who is in heaven. And that's a praise. That's a doxology. Holy is your name. Uh, the word holy, uh, which is um, hagios, this is hagiosune, 
I think Hagiosune. I think it's the uh, the adjective, but it, it means saint. It means holy. It means sanctified. It's all over the New Testament. It's very common, but it, it always refers to God's sanctification. And, you know, that's an easy one to discern because man doesn't have any sanctification. Man is not holy. Man has fallen. But man is made holy by God and he is commanded by God to be holy. And that's why we have a positional sanctification, your Another definition of sanctification or, or hagias is that you're set apart, uh, set apart unto God at salvation. You're made a saint and that you are forever. That's your position in Christ. But from that position, from that new self, you are to act, uh, you and I are to act in a sanctified manner. Uh, and, and that is here also because sin is here. And whenever sin, forgive us our sins as we forgive our, uh, those, in Matthew it's forgive us our debts actually, uh, the, you know, that brings to mind, uh, you know, our performance. And um, that confession of sin every day is always a stark reminder of, you know, my lack of performance or where I come up short or where I'm weak. Um, and so uh, the first part is first praising the Father for his person and his work. And, you know, right at the beginning, you're in way over your head. <laughs> I love that about it. It's, and, you know, I, I was saying this prayer as a little kid in Catholic Church. We, everybody in the church said it out loud every Sunday service or Mass. And, uh, you know, it just was familiar. You know, that's what you said. You kind of patted yourself on the back when you had it all memorized. But, uh, you know, technically, at the start, we're way in over our, we're in way over our heads. We're praising God the Father for his person and work. For, we're praising him for his person. He's holy. And where is he? In heaven. Uh, and, and that's where perfection is. Heaven here is the abode of God where nothing's wrong, everything's perfect, where his will rules and reigns. And then we have his work, which is his kingdom and his will. And by the way, all those three are in perfect order. If you don't recognize him as father, if you don't sanctify him in your heart, then you can't know anything about the kingdom and you can't follow his will. So the first part, again, is praising the Father for his person and work. And then we have petition for our needs. Give us today our daily bread, which, is our, which also speaks of contentment because it's bread. Uh, but bread here would refer to everything. Uh, and and that's, it's used like that. Jesus, when he broke the bread, he said, this is my body. The, the bread, he said, I am the bread of life that comes out of heaven. You eat of this bread and what? You'll never hunger again. This speaks of contentment and satisfaction for whatever God has given you. And if we find ourselves wanting, well, here, if we find ourselves discontent because we want more, this petition tells us, turn that around. Right? You can't pray, I mean, unless you're just parroting the words. But when you pray, give us our daily bread. And that word daily is a weird word here. It's a, I'm looking forward to telling you that we're going to pursue that word and find out nothing about it. But it's, give us today our daily bread. What I have today, if I'm not content with it, and I'm out of line as a disciple. So what does that mean? Flog myself? No. Get in line. Right? We, you, you, you're in, in this prayer, as Jesus is going to tell us, part of the, the limit to this prayer is right before he gives it to us, he gives us some cautions about what not to do. And one of the things not to do is to think that we're going to be heard for our many words. And to think that we should be praying uh, eloquent, lengthy, uh, impressive to others' prayers, so out loud in public, so that they may see us and and uh, and and honor us as great prayer warriors. Uh, 
And Jesus says, well, if you do that, you have your reward. You've been recognized. Good for you. But So what does he tell us to do? He says to go in your inner room. Pray to your father in secret. And then what will your father do in secret? He will reward you. What's the reward? Well, to determine that, we have to find out what is prayer really for. If we find out the purpose of prayer, we find out the reward of prayer. Uh, and so the first, this give us, our day, our, give us today our daily bread, is satisfaction and contentment with what we have right now. And in fact, that would mean great joy at the fact that God has given us anything and that we have life with him and that we are sustained. You know, could things be easier? Could things be less painful? Could things be a little more comfortable? Blah, 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 blah. And all of that is true. But uh, what uh, things could not be is any better with your father. Then we have confessions of sins. And I tie this here just as a thought that after this, Jesus, you know, he says, forgive us our sins. And a lot of people, do we have a problem? Why is he saying forgive us our sins when we're already forgiven of our sins? And there, what you're doing is you're getting too detailed with your theology and you're missing it. And that's what you can't do. you're, You're characterizing too much. Splitting up the words too much. Right, this is right from the Lord's mouth. Some, and, I, and I, not to get distracted here, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. The the way that He puts it is the way that it needs to be put. He's the Lord. <laughs> he's the one who gets to say, "Say this," you know. He's the one who gets to do that, not us. We don't get to say, "Lord, that doesn't make any sense to my theology." I mean, how ridiculous is that? Confessions of sins. What does He speak about right after? Don't be anxious for anything. Right, And in that, don't be anxious for anything, he says about what you're going to eat. Give us our daily bread. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat. Were you anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're drink, and what you're going to wear? In other words, were you anxious about life? Forgive us our sins. Judging others. Chapter 7. Did you do that? Oh, yeah, most likely. Um, yeah, forgive us our sins as did they judge you is it damn right they did <laughs> right they judged me we, you know you, you judge as well buddy um, forgive us our sins well, we'll go with Matthews forgive us our debts as we that is where you see a like it's hosts Greek word hosts means as we forgive our debtors those who have debts against us. Um, And so that's judging others. Right? And love your enemies. It's right there. So each of these petitions we can take, you know, like sometimes you see in those detective shows where they have a, you know, the, the guy they're looking for and they have all these red strings that are going out to all their pieces of evidence. You could take this prayer smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and draw these strings to different parts of the prayer and actually draw them to all prayers. And then you find out that, yeah, in a very succinct, limited amount of words that we could memorize so easily so that no matter where we are, we wouldn't have to say, hey, too bad I didn't bring my Bible. I don't know how to pray. Come on. It'd take you 10 minutes to memorize that. You have it with you everywhere you go. And maybe one time when you're emphasizing the Father. Maybe another time you're emphasizing. When I say emphasizing, I mean spending time speaking with your Father as his Son who is qualified to approach his throne with boldness. You're speaking to him about your discontentment. Give us today our daily bread. You're speaking to him about your, the incredibly hard time you're having forgiving someone else. You're speaking to him about how you keep getting sucked into the same temptation. That's the last petition. How the devil has way more power over you than he should. Last him, last petition. Or that you really haven't spent much time praising God. You've been absorbed with yourself. That's the first petition. And you see, you have this prayer with you everywhere you go, and it will guide you to stay on course. And it's important to stay on course because this road is so stinking narrow. 
all of us have tried to stretch it wider. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, for those of you online, you can't see it, but we we put a carpet down the middle of the aisles. It's, there's one aisle in our in our mega church, and uh, and it, it's really more for sound absorption that was recommended that we put it down for because it was echoey in here. And uh, and it, but it's a runner. <laughs> And when I stay this narrow road, I'm always looking at it, you know, and it would be narrower than that. So anyway, now you know what I'm looking at. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So in the, the sake of just a, a few minutes here, which I think this is a good place to wrap it up. The, um, the limits to these six petitions, again, are divided into two parts. The first is about the Father and the Son, because the work of the Father is here. There's no kingdom without the king. It's interesting how the son does not put his name in this prayer, yet none of it works without him. And so his name is kind of everywhere. And the petition for us, our confession of sins, and a petition, lastly, for guidance. Guidance and wisdom to stay on the narrow road. Because it's temptation that pulls me off of it, that drag my eyes away from it. And there is nothing in human life and in human history, in all of human history, all the money, all the economies, all the kingdoms that have come and gone, all the great uh, basilicas that have been built and are now gone, the pyramids, everything, none of it is near as important as you and I living this life. Nothing is as important as that. And so, in that, we who are walking or trying to uh, walk this narrow road that leads to life, that we stay in constant communication, but not in any old way that we want. We have to be careful here because you're not just limited to this prayer. We'll see that because there's other prayers that are mentioned in the New Testament that are would apply to us exactly such but you can see how they're related but what we have here is a structure that keeps us from getting too far off course and too far off course is when we start praying for things selfishly james warns us of that in james uh, chapter four james says you yeah you ask but you don't have because you want to spend it on yourself now it's a selfish thing this keeps us away from selfishness uh, when we pray for others, this keeps us right on track with, well, what do we really want for others? We want them walking that narrow road, uh, and, and same, same with us. And so the, this prayer uh, keeps us grounded in the areas that prayer is effective and legitimate. And that's exactly what we want. We don't want to be wasting our time in prayer. Jesus said it. You're not going to be heard because of your many words. You just wait... Uh, as he says here, we'll start with that this on Sunday, that back in pagan times, and, and certainly in common pagan times, uh, pagan religions that are still on this world, that people pray lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of words. And I guess the, the idea is, is that you wear the God out. You get so sick of hearing you that he's like, all right, I'll give you what you want if you just shut up. And, and that's what Jesus says here. He says, uh, it's in Matthew 6, uh, 7. You could look back there. He says, when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Gentiles mean, it's a word for nations or uh, uh, unbelievers, the nations of unbelievers. That's what they do. In paganism, they had these many, many incantations. And they thought, well... Uh, kind of like the rosary in the Catholic Church. The Muslim also has beads that they pray. I'm sure Hindus do as well. That uh, They are, think they're heard for their many words. Um, but this is not many words. But they are precise words. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your guidance in this truth. Your Lord's words are gold. They are, uh, as you say in Proverbs, uh, a gold apple surrounded by, or is it the silver apple surrounded by a gold frame? Uh, the, it's precious to us. May we not 
deal with them in any lesser way. But to see the preciousness of what they are, to grab hold of them in our lives, to know that it's not just in Bible class that this matters, but much more so in life as we, as we explore and journey on the narrow road that leads to life. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Why?